Hey everyone, welcome to the Faith Chapel Podcast. We are so glad to have you join us. Faith Chapel exists to help people follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, and be on mission with Jesus. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. If you have any questions about who we are or what you hear, you can visit faithchapel.cc or email podcast at faithchapel.cc. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's dive into this week's message. How's everybody doing? Good. I hope you're all right. My name is Nate. If I haven't met you, hello to everyone, everybody online. Thanks for joining us. Might be watching this today or later in the week. We're really happy you're here. And especially anybody who uh, maybe we call it being spiritually unresolved. So anybody who you're not sure what you believe, we just always want to like say thank you for being willing to ask good questions. And we hope this is a safe place for you to explore who Jesus is. Um, we're biased, but we're also open to your process, okay? Hey, uh, we're gonna jump into 1 Corinthians chapter six here in just a couple of minutes. Before we do, I wanna say two things. One, uh, yesterday had like a, just a sacred moment. It was a really difficult time, but this room was filled with, I don't know, eight or 900 people, probably 500 or 600 of them were teenagers. I am, um, we just had a ton of people that showed up to be able to host a memorial service for that really tragic accident that happened last weekend where three teenagers lost their lives. So I just want to say thanks for being a church where, hey, we do what we need to to help the community grieve and mourn. And you would have been touched by it. This whole section where you guys are right here was filled with the entire West football team. And, um, you know, it was just a, a sacred and spiritual time for all the students. Another thing, on a completely different note, is I get mail occasionally. Mostly I get email, but sometimes I get real mail. And this is maybe my favorite letter I've ever gotten. I just opened it yesterday. I got to read it to you. It's from a second grader, right? It's just great. Dear Nate, I'm typing this letter in my new, on my new school computer. And I'm not sure he's excited about this, but he says, my mom is my teacher now because of the coronavirus. <laughs> I am in second grade. My name is Landon. Me and my family live in Linden, Washington, which is like all the way up from Seattle, right at the Vancouver border there. So we're from Linden, Washington, uh, but we still watch your church. We started watching your church during coronavirus when we couldn't go to ours. I like to hear your speeches. Never heard that from a second grader before. I love that. I also like the music and how we got to know your church is because of the Uptown Funk Song version video on YouTube which is hilarious. It was this parody that our team did on a song and it is by far the most popular thing this church has ever produced. It's got like 50,000 views. Like what in the world? That's the thing that everybody wants to watch. Uh, my brother Daniel and I really liked it. We also liked the Father's Day song and then he gives us a joke. This is a joke. I was wondering if you wanted some dead batteries. Don't worry, they're free of charge. <laughs> dad jokes, dad jokes. Anybody want one? How have you been doing? How is life living in Montana? What made you want to be a pastor? And then this is the part that just broke me up. Can you give your church the dollar in the envelope, which is right here? Can you please write me back? I'll sign off for now, Landon. And um, I'm going to write them back. And Landon, I'm not going to give your dollar. I'm going to give a dollar from me, and I'm going to keep this one with your letter and put it in a frame. That is just like beautiful. I love that. I love that. So sometimes I'm not sure if I just like to um, burn down the whole internet, but when I get a letter from Landon and realize that probably 60% of people that call this church their home are joining us online and a second grader from Linden, Washington is, um, 
learn how to follow Jesus. Like, I think that's beautiful. That's beautiful. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If by chance you got up today and you said, you know what I want? I want to go to church. I want to learn about lawsuits and a list of 10 gnarly sins. This is your lucky day. That's exactly what we're going to talk about. So we're in this series in the book of 1 Corinthians. Corinthians is one book out of 66 books in the Bible. And it's written by the Apostle Paul. And it's one of the earliest written books in the New Testament. It's written about 53 or 54 AD. It's written by Paul to a group of friends that he had just lived for a whole year and a half with. And it's a new church and it's a unique church. Here's why it's unique. They're Corinthians. They're part of the Greco-Roman Empire. And they are now following Jesus. And this is the very first church in the New Testament that is predominantly made up of people who are not Jewish. And so not being Jewish, they didn't have access to the first two thirds of the Bible, the Old Testament. So Jewish people had a certain ethic. They had a certain morality that's derived from the Old Testament scriptures. But these Corinthians, they, they don't have any of that. They have their cultural understanding of what ethics, what morality, what sexuality is supposed to look like. And it has nothing to do with the Bible. So they're just, they're living their lives and then they've heard who Jesus is and they're saying, hey, Paul, we wanna follow Jesus, but here's the challenge and here's why this book is so helpful to us because as they're leaving what it means to be a Corinthian to follow Jesus, they're trying to figure out how much of our old way of living how much of our old morality can we take with us as we follow Jesus? What are we gonna have to leave behind that we're actually really comfortable with? And so Paul's gonna hit on two things. He's gonna hit on how they're gonna deal with conflict within the church. And then two, he's gonna hit on uh, just kind of like old ways of living, what we call sin. What are you gonna do with these things as you start to follow Jesus? So let's read together. We're gonna to read the first eight verses. I'll pause for a little bit, talk, and then we're gonna jump into the last couple of verses. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? This is interesting. He's also gonna say, the Lord's people judge angels, and we'll talk about that. And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge the angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. This is a powerful statement. Paul's saying, I'm so uncomfortable with how you are dealing with your internal conflicts in the church. Like, I, like you've got to understand, this is shameful. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? This is important. So Paul is not talking about litigation um, between an individual and an enormous corporation. He's saying that, so there's 1.33 1, there's 1 million lawyers in the United States. And some of you in the room are lawyers. I'm not trying to put you out of business. Paul isn't trying to put you out of business. He's saying this, it's the relationships within the church. Okay, we gotta change that. We gotta have a better way of doing it. We'll go on. But instead, one brother takes another to court and this in front of unbelievers. This is the problem for him. It's like, it's tainting uh, 
your witness to your community. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers and sisters. We'll pause there. What is happening in Corinth? Well, this system, the legal system is very different than ours. Here's our tendency 2000 years later, what we know about the legal system, we superimpose into the text, right? But this is different. Um, about seven years ago, I got pulled over um, right after I dropped one of my kids off at school. I, I, like, I'm not speeding. I'm like, I don't know what's going on here. So I pulled over and officer came up and looked at me and said, do you know your tags are expired? And I said, no, I didn't. I said, when did they expire? He said, today. It was the first day, right? He just happened to be behind me. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. What do I do about it? And he writes me a ticket and he says, you got a court date. I'm like, I have to go to court for like expired tags for one day? All right, all right. So I go to court and I've been, I don't know why, but like I get chosen for jury duty all the time. My wife and I have been married for 29 years. She's never been chosen. I've been chosen seven times. They just love me, right? And uh, I'd never been in in this way. So you go into, it's in the county court for those of you who are in Billings, the county courthouse downtown. And you walk in and I did not know what to expect, but it's, it's a room with probably, I don't know, 150 chairs in it. And the judge is up front and all of us criminals are seated like in front of the judge and they're about an hour and a half behind, okay? Cause like it's packed. And so like, I'm just sitting, sitting next to people and like, you, you start looking around and you're like, I wonder what she did. I wonder what he did. And then you find out because they read the charges into the microphone and you, oh, some of you are nodding, yes. And you like walk down, you walk down the aisle like, yes, that's me, sorry. Like, it's just super, like it's this terrible walk of shame. It's so awkward. And um, this is when I knew I was in trouble. It was my turn and the judge who was a, a woman pronounced my last name correctly. And that means she knows me because nobody pronounces my last name correctly. She's like, Nathan Petzl? And she had like that question mark in her voice like, my pastor is in my courtroom right now. <laughs> and I'm like walking down and she reads and, and like with relief, she goes, oh, expired plates. She was just like, I'm so glad this is why you're here, right? <laughs> I took care of it, paid it. Here's what it looked like in Corinth though. Okay, I'm gonna show you a picture of if we went to Corinth today, we would see this. And this is gonna help us understand their legal system. So actually behind Corinth, part of what made it a city that survived for many, many years was they had this natural place where they retreated if they were in any type of uh, attack. Um, they stored weapons up here, rocks. Anybody who tried to assault the city, they could just hold out for a long time. But here... <clears throat> These uh, stack of stones, which you can tell they're, they're just ruins now, but it was a little bit higher. This was called the Bema seat, B-E-M-A. Bema means judgment. Bema means judgment. So this is how a Greek city operated when it came to legal disputes. Is You can't tell from here, but 180 degrees in front of the Bema, street, a seat, Bema seat is the outdoor marketplace, 
where six days a week, it would be filled with thousands of people. It was where you bought your clothes. It was where you bought uh, livestock. It was where you bought your food. Your crafts were sold. So there's this massive marketplace and there's thousands of people that gather there every day. And right in front of the marketplace is the Bema seat, the seat of judgment. So what would happen on a regular basis is the elders or the judges of the city would take seats up on this Bema seat. And this is how you dealt with any type of challenge that you had with another human being. As you walked in front of the Bema seat, and because the Greeks so, like they just respected rhetoric, reason, the ability to communicate, you would come with your opponent and you would begin to argue out loud your case against this other person. And remember, this is in the marketplace. It's in front of everybody. And if it was juicy, right? If it was like, oh, what in the world? Everybody leaves the marketplace and you could have an audience of thousands of people listening to your accusations against someone else, their accusations against you. And the judges would listen from the Bema seat and then they would issue an edict. They'd declare who was right and who was wrong. And so this is how the Corinthians have been dealing with conflict since the beginning. It's part of what it meant to be a Corinthian. And Paul is saying this, how about the followers of Jesus figure out a different way of dealing with conflict inside of the church? How about we not take one another in front of the entire city and shame each other and try to yell louder and try to win the argument and try to be the victor? And he asked this question. Why not be cheated? Why not? be wronged. That's point number one. What if, what if we could follow the way of the cross, which he, he presented in chapter two, where he said, here's how Jesus won the victory. It was through the cross. It was through humility and sacrifice. He says, what if in this community of people who want to follow Jesus, what if we made a decision to say, I don't have to win every argument when it's with another follower of Jesus. I can choose the way of the cross. I can choose to be cheated. I can choose to be wronged because there is something more important than me winning, than me being the victor. And you can take this and you can filter this into every relationship that you have with your neighbors, with your family members, with your friends, if you're married, with your spouse, that somewhere along the line, the followers of Jesus need to decide, I'll choose to be wrong. I'll choose to pay the price. It may cost me a little bit of money. It may cost me a lot of pride. But rather than this old way, I'm choosing a new way. Because Jesus, if you looked at John chapter 15, Jesus says this to his disciples. It's just a, a radical countercultural statement. He says, this is how everyone will know that you're my disciples, by the way that you love one another. So in that instance, he's not even saying by the way you love the people in your city. He's saying, by the way that the followers of Jesus love each other, that will be the 
point of differentiation. That will be the thing that is radically different is that this community of Jesus followers finds a way to love each other. And it's just gonna stand out. It's just gonna be unique. And so Paul says this, the old way where you won by being more convincing, by being louder, by being more dominant, by accusing someone of telling a better story. What if you left that behind in your new life of following Jesus? You chose the way of the cross. You chose humility and sacrifice and forgiveness. What if you chose to be cheated? What if you chose to be wronged? It's just a radical request from Paul. He says, don't you know that one day you're going to be entrusted with some really unique responsibilities. In fact, as followers of Jesus, you're destined to render weighty and consequential decisions over the nations of the world. And how is it that you can't seem to work out these trivial things? Now, what is Paul drawing on? He's probably drawing on these two passages of scripture. The first would be Daniel chapter seven, verse 22. Daniel seven twenty-two. so way back in the Old Testament, where, where there's this idea presented that the followers of God one day will be involved in helping to lead this universe. And then also from Matthew 19, 28, where Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, part of what it's gonna mean in my new kingdom, my new reality, is you're gonna be a part of what I'm doing. We're gonna like lead the world. So if heaven has never sounded attractive to you because you have this image in your mind that you're gonna like look like a little cherub and you're gonna have to wear a diaper and be chubby and play a harp and sit on a cloud. Man, that is not a biblical perspective of heaven whatsoever. It's actually more like what you find in Genesis 1 and 2, that human beings will come back into alignment with God and he left us here on the planet and said, take care of this for me. The heaven's gonna be us taking care of the planet, working for God. And it's not just the planet, it is like the universe. He says, if you're gonna be called to do that one day, can't you find somebody in your community who will help arbitrate your challenges? Can't you just choose to be cheated, choose to be wrong? Now let's jump back into the passage. Paul's gonna give us a list of 10 things that he's uncomfortable with. And he's gonna say three statements. This is the important part. Three statements about everyone who is in Jesus. Or do you not know that wrongdoers, this is a big, bold word. Guess what? Includes all of us, okay? Wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither. Sexually immoral, porneia. It's just this radical conservative New Testament concept. It's any sex outside of a covenant relationship between a man and a woman, okay? Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, those who worship anything other than God, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you know what? He knew them. Because you were Corinthian, and that is what some of you were. And here's, here's the verse. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pause this question, point number two. 
Who inherits the kingdom of God? What's he even talking about there? Well, Paul has this radical perspective and it is the hope of the Christian church is very unique to the teachings of Jesus. That Jesus came here one time, the first time, and he came as a man and God combined. And he came and he died on a cross. He was resurrected from the dead and he won a victory over sin. The world is still a bit broken, but one day he will come back for the second time. And when he comes back for the second time, he will come in what is called the undiminished glory of God, not clothed as a man. And when he comes back the second time, he will come to make all things new. He will come to heal everything that is unjust and broken from our human sicknesses to our human systems. That when he comes back the second time, it will be a new creation. And this is what Paul is saying. This is who you were as a Corinthian. And if you stay here, this new thing that God is going to bring, you don't have the capacity to inherit this new world that God wants to bring one day. You're gonna to have to find a different way of operating. So who's gonna inherit the kingdom of God? By the way, every one of these words he uses, he uses as like an ongoing tense. Because we read that, anybody read that and get a little scared? Like, ooh, I was greedy this week. <laughs> I was a swindler, or maybe we were something else. Another thing that's really important is I don't know why the church does this, but oftentimes we create like a hierarchy of sins, right? And there's a list and like these ones up here, oh, super naughty. And then lower down, not as naughty. Whenever Paul makes a list of sins, like it's a list and they all have the same consequences. So for some of us, we feel like because one of those sins we've done in our past, like, man, how could I ever be forgiven? Listen, God does not judge your sin according to its intensity. There are different consequences for our sin, right? But man, being greedy is the same as being an adulterer. Both of them, Paul says, if you go on living, and those words are always present tense. It's not that you did this once, but if you go on living as a Corinthian, having other gods, you're an idolater. You just won't be able to inherit the new kingdom that God's bringing. If you go on in greed, that, is, that was normal as a Corinthian, right? But if you go on still being greedy deep in your heart, you don't have the capacity to inherit the new thing that God is doing on planet earth. So here's the really important part. This is point number three. You were and now you are. Okay, you were and now you are. So you were all these things. That's what it meant to be a Corinthian. You had an entirely different ethic regarding your sexuality, entirely different ethic regarding greed and, and everything. But now you're someone else. Okay, you're someone else. Here's the three things that you are. For anybody who is in Jesus, if you've turn to Jesus. If you said, I need you, I surrender, you are God, I am not. These are three things that you have already been given. These are not things that you can achieve. They are gifts from God. He says, number one, you are washed. You are washed. Now, what does that mean? Paul's probably alluding, at least in part, to the act of baptism. So one of my favorite things is when people get baptized at this church, this wall, we got a, did you know we have a magic wall? That wall disappears and there's this heated, brilliant baptismal tank back there. And we came and visited this church, I don't know, probably 10 years ago. And one of the things that I just, I, like it brought me to tears is whenever anybody comes up out of that water 
everybody in the room cheers. I don't think anybody taught us to do that. It's just like, that is what it's all about. We have all kinds of numerics in a church. You know the numeric I care about the most is how many people are getting baptized because that is a step of obedience because nobody looks their best when they come out of the water. Your shirt is clinging to all the folds and lumps, right? You're like, hair's washed back and you can see where your real hairline actually is. It is this, it is just this surrender. So here's what we say to people when they're baptized. Whisper in their ear, you're buried with Christ and raised to new life. There's this concept, the biblical baptism is an outward ceremony. It's an outward sign of what Jesus has done in your life that he took me, a Corinthian, a broken person, and he somehow through his death he said, now all the old you can die too. And when you come up out of the water, not only are you identifying with the death of Jesus, but you're identifying with resurrection, with second chance, that Jesus has washed you and made you clean, that the old things that define me have been washed away by the death and resurrection of Jesus. You have been washed, he says. There's this gift, it wasn't anything you did. And Jesus gave this baptism a whole new meaning because it was ancient in Hebrew culture. They, all over Israel, if you go and visit, there's these things called mikvahs and they're baptismal tanks. But here's what they use them for. If I had to do business with somebody who wasn't a good person or somebody who wasn't a Jew, I had to like wash myself from interaction with them afterwards. But Jesus and John the Baptist say, let's give baptism a whole new meaning. Let's talk about what's inside. Let's, let's be baptized for the remission of our sins, not because of the pollutants of the people around us. By the way, if you haven't been baptized, on Easter weekend, April 4th, we're gonna do baptisms. For the first about 450 years of the church, you could only be baptized one weekend a year. It was on Easter Sunday. Because it was, you had to wait all year because it was like, we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus and we're celebrating your resurrection as you come out of the water. You've been washed. Number two, you've been sanctified. You've been sanctified. Now that's not a word that we use very often, right? I've never looked at anybody and said, hey brother, you're sanctified today. What does this mean? Can I give you, like I'm gonna go a little bit junior high pastor here. I'm gonna do a little potty talk, okay? But it's gonna help us understand what this word actually meant if you lived in Corinth in 53 AD. This is what it meant. So imagine a world, you have tens of thousands of people that live in Corinth and you don't have any indoor plumbing, okay? Or any sanitation. It was one of the biggest challenges that they had in the ancient world. The Greeks and Romans found a way to gather people, but what do you do with like all the human waste, right? So your houses were filled with pottery and all the pots looked the same, but there were pots that were used for certain purposes and others for other purposes, right? So you ever heard the term a chamber pot? Okay, chamber pot is like before we had indoor plumbing, you took a chamber pot into your bedroom and that's where you relieved yourself in the middle of the night, okay? But how do you know like, okay, the pots look the same. Is that a chamber pot or is that a freshwater pot? Because you don't want to mix the two up, right? There's consequences. So this word sanctified was used in everyday language by saying, hey, those, those pots, they're like, they're for base purposes. These pots, although they look the same, these are sanctified. 
These have been set apart to be used to serve fresh water, beautiful things in life. Those pots, they look the same, but they have an entirely different purpose. Paul is saying this, not only were you washed, but you were set apart. You were sanctified. Not to be a part of that old way of living, the Corinthian way of living, which was very normal for you. Now God has cleansed you and he's made you different. He's he's set you apart for his purposes. And because you're sanctified, because you've been set apart to do his work, why, why would you ever want to go back to that? That's a pollutant. That, that's, that's unhealthy. You're in a new healthy place. This is where Jesus has put you. And then his last word, he says, is you've been justified. You've been justified. And this is a legal term. So imagine, remember that picture we showed of the Bema seat in Corinth? So this is what every judge would do. They'd read, I do my best to write my charges against the person that I'm opposing. And the judge was in a position to say, you're guilty, this is what you'll pay, you're innocent. Justified means this, is that the judge would look at your list of sins. Just imagine that this list I'm holding in my hands is an accumulation of everything that you have ever done wrong. Pages. Justified means that the judge will look at you and say, your case is dismissed. The charges against you throw up. Not only are you forgiven and come back to a net zero, but you are actually in a place of honor. You're respected. So Paul looks at these people who are struggling with their sexual ethic. They're struggling with their greed and slander. And he says, do you realize God forgave everything. He washed you. He sanctified you. He, he justified you. He tore up like all memory of who you were and what you did has been erased. Why would you ever want to go back to that? There's a new way for you to live. So sadly, oftentimes the church boils Christianity down. We truncate it into something so simple. It's just like, it's like behavior modification that being a Christian means that you, you like quit saying these words and you start saying these words and you just work really hard to have good behavior. Listen, that is a religious effort and that is not Christianity. Here's what Christianity is. When you were broken and unlovable, when you were soiled, when you were stained, somebody died for you and forgave you and embraced you He said, I'll take you as you are and I will wash you clean. I'll give you a new start. I'll set you apart for a better life so that you can be fully human, not led by your urges and instincts anymore. And I will justify you. I will take out every written charge and say, you are forgiven. That's what Christianity is, is that you've been given these three gifts. Now Paul says to the people in Corinth, why do you want to live like this? 
so we, we have a, a couple of dogs in our house, and one of them is my, um, my bird hunting dog, is Springer Spaniel. And she's just nuts, right? And I keep telling my wife every year, well, she'll calm down next year. She's now five years old. And, uh, you know, just it's great when you're chasing pheasants, but the rest of the time, just want to give her a lobotomy or something. And uh, there's this funny thing my dog does. If you give her a bath, you, you take the time and wash her, try to dry her off, and every time you let her outside, you know what she does? She can't handle being clean. And so she, like, she puts her head down into the grass or the dirt, and she just like, starts plowing her way, getting as dirty as possible. And you're like, no, 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 stop, 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 stop. She's used to be in a certain way. I think that's what we do. Paul says, that's not you. You're different. You're clean. You're forgiven. We hope that this helps you take your next step on your spiritual journey. If you'd like to get involved with the work and ministry of Faith Chapel, visit faithchapel.cc and click on Next Steps. If you'd like to speak to a pastor or connect with us in any way, email connect at faithchapel.cc. We look forward to connecting with you soon.